Uh, we are in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And uh, I'll begin reading in verse, uh, verse 8 and take it through verse 15 and then we'll, we'll pick it up where we left off last week. No, 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 it's the exact same one. Okay. <laughs> I know I said that last time and I added, but it's the same one. All right, so uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning of verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So last week, as we're working our way through verse 8, um, again, remember that when he begins by saying, see to it that no one takes you captive, uh, the idea is that that is to be uh, a habit. Uh, that we have. We're always, in a sense, to be on our guard. Uh, again, this is an imperative, so we are basically commanded to do this, to be aware of what's going on around us, uh, to be aware of how we are influenced. Um, so that I, so with that idea then means that when it comes to everything that comes our way, whether it's social media, the news you watch on TV, maybe the podcasts you may listen to, um, whether it's the books that you read, um, I would say magazines, most people don't read magazines, maybe read magazines online, uh, but all these, there's all these different things that, you know, we're getting information all the time about whatever it is that we're interested in, but we also need to recognize that there's always, um, with these, uh, in, this, uh, in these various forms of media, there's always several agendas that are taking place, and sometimes there can be an agenda that is being worked that even the author of an article is unaware of because it's just their bias. In other words, we all have a bias, so if you just kind of look at it in general, when a Christian looks at certain things that go on in the world, let's say just the news, and a non-Christian looks at the news, they both are going to have fairly different views. They, they may have an agreement, in a sense, as to what's going on, and maybe even agree as to what it means, but even with that, there's going to be a difference in how they understand and comprehend what's going on. Um, and that's the way that, it, that's the way that it, sh it's, it should be, at least for the believer. Uh, because our uh, view of things, our understanding of things, should be heavily informed by what the Bible says. We have, a, we have an understanding um, of, what's, of what's going on. Um, and we understand maybe the, the truth behind what's taking place. I don't mean in a sense that there's a conspiracy, uh, but we, we understand the motive. Uh, or we understand what's trying to be accomplished. Uh, again, a simple example would be this. So if you go to the Natural Museum of, of History in Washington, D.C., uh, when you walk into the main 
domed area, you know, there's usually some big dinosaur that's there and they have cases to the right and left of all these dinosaur bones. And if you look carefully, you'll notice that when you look at the case of the dinosaur bones, you notice that there's normally in the skeleton that's laid out there, there's two different shades of color in the bones. And the reason why there's two different shades is because some of those bones are bones. The rest are just fill-ins. What they think the dinosaur would look like. They say, well, based on this, it probably was this. Um, and they may be right on m much of it, but not necessarily. So the non-believer who, let's say, has only been exposed to whatever they learn in school is going to naturally assume that what he reads about these bones is true. That through thousands or millions of years of evolution, this animal or this dinosaur either appeared or at one point disappeared. For the individual who believes in scripture, what we understand is that no, this is part of God's creation. He created this. Now, when we both approach to look at the science that's behind it, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, a non-believer still is working on the assumption that, of course, evolution is correct. The believer, often, is going to say, well, wait a minute now. Let's, we need to analyze the presuppositions of the scientist because that comes into play when it comes to how we interpret the evidence. In other words, both groups are looking at the evidence. Both groups, believer and non-believer, are going to interpret the evidence, and their understanding of that evidence is going to be very different. Uh, and, just in case if you're unaware, uh, there are many, many individuals who are scientists who will tell you that evolution, evolutionary thought and evolutionary theory is scientifically untenable. It, that, that didn't happen. There's no way it happened. There is what we call microevolution, and the way that we understand that is God has created species to where there is variation within those species, and that's normal. And there's ad adaptations to whether it's environment or what have you. Um, what, when we normally speak of evolution, what we normally are talking about is uh, macroevolution, and that's where one species becomes another. And of course, there's still zero evidence for that ever happening. Um, there's no, there's, they're looking for what's called the missing link. They've never found the missing link, and they won't because it's biologically impossible for that to take place, and scientists will tell you that. But the idea is, is that when it comes to anything that we're looking at or hearing, there's, there's often going to be more than one side. Many people say, well, there's always two sides. Well, sometimes there's three or four. Uh, but the idea is, is that as Christians, we need to be on our guard because there is going to be this push to try to make us think differently about the world we live in. That would include how we, how we understand morals and where morals come from. What is moral and what is immoral? Uh, what is right? What is wrong? What is ethical? What is unethical? Um, all those things come into play uh, when it comes to, even when it comes to politics, when it comes to certain decisions as to which direction, you know, or what decisions should be made in foreign policy, or what decisions should be made when it comes to dealing with whatever. There's going to be uh, differences already just among people, but again, for the believer, there's more influencing his decision, and that's going to cause him to think differently. So the main point that he's trying to make here, though, with that, is to make sure that we are aware at all times that we are not going to be deceived by, again, he calls it empty philosophy, 
Uh, it's a humanistic way of thinking that will move us away from our understanding of Christ, our belief, our belief in Christ, uh, and those things. Because that's always going on. There's always, there's always an attempt to erode uh, our faith or to uh, diminish our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have to kind of be on our guard uh, when it comes to that. And so that's, that's really what he's talking about there uh, when, he makes that, when he makes that statement. So again, see to it that, t- that no one takes you captive. Uh, the, again, the idea behind captive is really the idea of enslaving an individual or taking them away from something. And then he talks about the philosophy, empty deceit, and says that it's according to human tradition. So in your notes there, we, we looked at it real quick. I just kind of gave you some, uh, I mean, they're meant to be funny, but there's some takes on people who are philosophers uh, that, again, they're people who talk about something they don't understand and they make you think it's your fault. Um, and then others have said that a philosopher is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black hat, which is not there. Uh, and then other, another one said philosophy is saying what everybody else knows in language that no one can understand. And philosophy sometimes can sound that way. So now I think it's still a good discipline, and I think that we should still study it to a degree, uh, but we don't throw away the Bible when we do so. So again, if when it comes to just our conversation about philosophy, if we mean by that a search for clarity and understanding regarding the whole of reality, then the Christian must, in a sense, philosophize. Uh, And so I've mentioned to you before that there are some individuals who we we might call them Christian philosophers. Um, They don't always would uh, adopt that title for themselves, but they're really involved in the discipline of philosophy, which is trying to find answers and make things clear. Um, So I've mentioned before, one of the most influential ones in the world, uh, especially in the 60s and 70s, uh, was Francis Schaeffer. Um, and his stuff is really very good. But even R.C. Sproul, even though he's a theolo- he was a theologian, he's, he's dead now, but he was a theologian, uh, he dabbled a great deal in philosophy, Christian philosophy, talking about humanistic philosophy and explaining where, where it went wrong and where the answers are in the Bible. And so there's a lot of these individuals that, that think this way or think uh, in ways trying to make things clear uh, so that there's not confusion, so that we can understand uh, what God has said and understand what the answers are to some of the big questions. Those big questions, you know, why is there something like the universe instead of nothing? Why are we here? You know, what is my purpose in life? Those kinds of things. Yes, Eileen. Don't, don't you think philosophers, once you have studied in school, doing ethics and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. or just their opinions about things? It is. It is. Right, right, yeah. It is. Now, now but see, that's, that's normally the way a Christian would think because we're thinking in terms of where the Bible is truth. So if you're saying things that go against what the Scripture says, then, and there's no evidence for that, there's nothing to support that, then that's just your opinion. That would be correct. Now, the philosopher would say, no, that he is searching for truth, maybe universal truth, and so the belief is, is that they can, through reason, figure out what the truth is. I would disagree, but I mean, that's kind of, so that's kind of where they're coming from. Um, and I have one of these concrete minds that kind of see things yeah. in one point, so... Yeah, we don't... Save your energy. 
I mean, if you're really into that kind of stuff, that's fine. But uh, yeah, you can save your energy because you're not really missing much of anything. Uh, and but we actually what we the thing that's important though is that there is a great deal of philosophy that seeps into everyday living. So in the same way, there's what we call pop psychology. There would there would indeed be pop uh, philosophy, um, little little supposed truisms that that people will say. Uh, and philosophers really have greatly influenced cultures and societies. Uh, the one that's often talked about among in Christian circles is Frederick Nietzsche. And he was the one that basically floated the idea. He wasn't the first one, but he in a sense said it out loud that God was dead. Now when he said that, he wasn't actually saying that God existed and that God had died because he didn't believe in God. But what he was getting into was, the, was that the fact that people believed in God and talked about God, that the idea of God had died. And then, of course, as you read through his writings, he, he kind of ended up making some predictions as to kind of what would happen to man because something has to replace God. And it leads to confusion and a bunch of other things and all that basically in the, in the end ended up coming true. Um, what is interesting about Frederick Nietzsche, just kind of a little side note, um, Frederick Nietzsche, um, when he got old, uh, started to go insane. And so uh, his sister... Uh, used to sell tickets to people, and they would come in the house to look at him because he he'd lost his mind, um, and so that's <laughs> that's how he ended up. So so much for family love. But anyway, uh, that, that, that's what happened to him. Yes. Well, I think there, it's, it's, there were some things creeping into the church, but it's basically the philosophy of the world. So during the time of Paul, there was a philosophy that, that began early on uh, around, I think it was in the 300s. Uh, so there was forms of hedonism. Uh, hedonism came out of a lot of different types of schools of thought, but the idea is if this is all there is, then you might as well live it up and get all you can because there's nothing to look forward to. Um, and, and then from that comes the idea that even if there is right or wrong, it doesn't matter what you do because no one's being held accountable because this is all there is. Um, there was a man by the name of, some call him Epicurus, some pronounce his name Epicurus, uh, but he, uh, in, in the 300s or so, uh, he was considered an atheist. He considered himself an atheist, and he uh, taught that the idea of God was detrimental to human happiness and human existence, because with the belief in God, there was the belief that there was life after death, and there was judgment, and you'd be judged for the wrong that you did, and he said that was a burden on people because they're always worried about what's going to happen at the judgment, and so they really couldn't enjoy life. Yeah, his view was that this is all there is. There is no God, there is no afterlife, and there is no judgment. Uh, so now his belief was that then the best way for a human being to live was to live a life of balance. Not too much, not too little. In fact, maybe have as little as possible so your life is easy. 
But the other side of that was the hedonistic side. It's like, wait a minute. If this is all there is, why would I deprive myself of anything? Which is a good question. Why would you? And so the, obviously that's the more popular side uh, of the belief. So yeah, on all these various philosophies that are out there still exist today in various forms. Uh, and that's definitely one of them. You know? uh, and I would say that may, maybe uh, if, there was another guy named Immanuel Kant. So he was asked the question, I don't think he was a believer. Some try to argue that he was, but I don't think he was. But anyway, Immanuel Kant, he was asked a question, and the question was, what is it that makes life meaningful? And so he thought about it for a long time. I'm, I'm going to give you the paraphrase of it. But basically he said that uh, the only thing that can make life worth living or, or make life meaningful was there had to be several things in place. He said there has to be life after death. And there has to be a judgment. And the reason why he said that was, he says, because if an individual can live his life and, and do error or do harm to others, and he's never held accountable in this life, and there's no life after death and no judgment, then what's the point? Why try so, again, why try so hard to be good? Whatever you feel like doing, that's what you should do. So he said, and he says, and that renders life meaningless. If you, if you love somebody with all your heart, but when you die, it's all over, what does it matter? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. So he said there had to be life after death. There had to be a judgment. There had to be a judge. And, there had to be a, and the judge had to be two things. He had to know everything. Because everyone knows, even today, you can go to court, and there may be a lot of things the judge doesn't know. There may be evidence that was never found. So the judge can only rule based on the evidence that's actually there. But if you have a judge who knows everything, that changes everything. And then, of course, that judge has to be all-powerful so that he then can execute the justice. There has to be, there's a, has to be a punishment that fits the crime, and God has to be powerful enough that nobody can stop him from doing that. Um, and so that's kind of what he came out with. A lot of Christians grabbed onto that and said, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what the Bible tells us. God does exist. He's the God of the Bible. There is life after death. Everyone is held accountable. Uh, it does matter what you do, whether it's good or bad, because God does reward those who do good, and he does punish those who do wrong. And he is all-powerful. Nothing can stop his judgment. Uh, and so what Epicurus saw as being a burden on man, um, uh, he saw that as being something that helped us to understand and made life meaningful. And of course, the, what raised the question for him was someone said, what about this man who lives in a small village and no one knows who he is and he does good all of his life, but he's never really rewarded for the good he does? What's the, what, there's no meaning to that person's life. And he said, but there is meaning to that person's life. It means something to God. What, you know, God is the one who has made us. God is the one who's created us. He's the one that's given us purpose. And God is the one who notices all things. And so it does matter. To, and because it matters to God, who is the supreme being, then your life does matter. It does count for something. Uh, and you're not, you're not just making that up kind of a thing. So that's what we have to be careful of, because philosophy, again, can be, in one sense, very endearing. Uh, it can be confusing. It can lead us away from God. It can lead us to God, depending on 
the questions that are asked, the kinds of answers that individuals come up with, you know, and those kinds of things. So some, some Christians have said, based on this verse, that all philosophy is bad, and it's, it's not. Um, but when it comes to evaluating anything, we, we always want to make sure that as a Christian, that we're always uh, bringing in the truth of the scripture, right? What is truly right, that's how I can evaluate what's, what's going on. I, I, need, I need to be able to divide truth from error um, so, that I can, so that I can go in the right, the right way, so that I can make the right decision uh, and those kinds of things. So again, uh, so again, for the believer, when it comes to philosophy, what we want to do is we want to think clearly, we want to, we want to strive for a consistent view of life, um, and again, we always want to submit to the guidance, to the limitation, and to the criticism uh, that's given to us by the light of divine revelation, which would be uh, the Bible. So in the verse, he says this. He says that this philosophy and empty deceit is according to human tradition, and most of us understand what that is, but then he says it's according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So what does he mean when he says that it's according to the elemental spirits of the world? So uh, Barclay said this about the word that's used for elemental, which is uh, the Greek word, which is uh, stoichei, and I think I'm saying it right. I'm probably not. He says that word literally means literally things which are set out in a row. In other words, it is, it is for instance, a word for a file of soldiers. But one of its common meanings, meanings is the letters of the alphabet, uh, because the letters of the alphabet form a series which can be set up in a row. So like if you think about the ABCs, that's what they are. We think of them as being in a certain pattern and what have you. So he goes on and says that this, that this word is used because it can mean the, not only the letters of the alphabet, but it's also what's involved in very elementary instruction on any subject. All right, so this is what he's getting at. So he goes on about the word, and this is where the word definitions and word usage is important to help us to draw maybe the depth of what's being said. So he says this word, the, ele the word elemental in English, he says its second meaning is it means the elemental spirits of the world and especially the spirits of the stars and planets. And so that would be the idea of astrology. He says, uh, not only back in the day, but even today, some people wear signs of the zodiac, uh, or they use the signs of the zodiac as charms on their bracelets or whatever. Um, I don't know if they still do it, because I don't read a newspaper, but I know it used to be very, very uh, popular for newspapers to have a, an astrological forecast. You know, So based on my birth, I'm a Sagittarius. So you look at Sagittarius, and it would say something super vague, <laughs> and you go, ah, things will be good for me, or whatever. Um, and uh, so people uh, believe in following what the stars say. And, and that was actually a very strong thing in the days of Paul. Many individuals made life and death decisions based on what they were told the stars were saying. You know, they couldn't understand the stars. You would have astrologers who would, who would do that. Um, but they would follow what they would say. And a lot of people would go to an astrologer for advice about the future, should I buy this business? Should I move? Should I invest? Whatever. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and it, it is a little difficult for us to understand how much that dominated the world, but it definitely dominated the world it, uh, back then. If it was like that today, I know you've seen, there's a few places around town. Uh, there's, I think Sister Hope is still around. Um, and then there's, who's the other one? There's a couple of them. Huh? Sister Power, what's, and there's another sister. I don't know. 
Yeah. I always just, but I, <laughs> of course, I always thought that if they were really good at what they did, when you go in the same, they go, uh, what do you hear about? You tell me. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, they're supposed to know. <laughs> and uh, I remember one time a lady told me she was going to go to one of these ladies to help her pick the lottery numbers. And I said, you know, if I had that ability, I'm not telling you the numbers. I'm, I'm playing the numbers, and I'm getting the money. So I, <laughs> I'm not really too sure what you're doing there. But anyway, um, so astrology was considered by some to be the queen of the sciences, even though it wasn't a science. Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, uh, a lot of those guys would never do a thing without consulting the stars. Alexander the Great uh, believed implicitly in the influence of the stars. Uh, they would say the stars were aligned right. That's why they were successful. Uh, again, they believed their whole lives were, were in a sense, fixed um, based on the stars. Um, and so if a man was born under a fortunate star, all was well. If he was born under an unlucky star, then don't even bother looking for happiness because you're not going to find it. Uh, those kinds of things. So they were, in a sense, they were, many were enslaved to the stars. Uh, or maybe what we could say is they're really enslaved to those who were the astrologers, who told them what the stars said, uh, and that kind of thing. But there's was, there was only one possibility of escape. Uh, if you were, let's say you were born under an unlucky star, and that was you had to know the right passwords and the right formula so that you could escape from the fatalistic influence of the stars. And, that was, and that, that's how some of the, the, your uh, wizards or whatever would make their money. You know, so I would say, John, I said, man, you're, you know, he says, I'm having all these troubles. And so I would get all this information from him and his birth and where he was born, and I would say, well, no wonder. I mean, your life is trash, man. I said, because when you were born, this star was here, this star was here, this star was here. And so he would say, is there anything I can do? I say, well, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a few things you can do, but it'll cost you. And he would say, whatever it takes. And so I would name whatever price, which would be based on what I know about him and how much I think he can get. And so he would scrape and borrow from relatives or whoever to bring me the money, and then I would give him the formula, whatever that formula is, or whatever the words were, or whatever the incantation was, um, to, uh, to kind of get out of this. And so that's what opened the doors for Gnosticism to move into the church. Remember when we talked about Gnosticism, Gnosticism was basically, it's a lot of things, but basically the idea is that there is divine revelation that's given only to a few people. And you have to be, in, in essence, a special person to receive divine revelation and the God or the gods will give it to no one else. And so if I'm one of those individuals, you better treat me well. Because if you don't, I'm not going to tell you what, what the gods have said. Uh, and, so, and it's another way to kind of you know, dominate people, to have power over them, uh, for me to be able to take advantage of them, uh, you know, to you know, rip them off or what have you. Um, and, there were, and sometimes there might be certain things I would have you do so that you could maybe try to get this divine revelation. And, um, you know, there's still a lot of that kind of stuff going on today in various, various religions, including Christianity. And so uh, these individuals were the ones who had the secret as to how to uh, escape certain things, uh, bad things that were going on with you or your family or what have you. And so, there, so you would have false teachers um, sometimes infiltrating the church because you have individuals who are, who are desperate, and, you know, they, maybe it's a family member who's sick 
or it's just one unfortunate thing after another. And so they're desperate and they're looking for any kind of an answer. And so somebody who comes along who maybe can sound like they're a Christian, and, and they, but, they, but this individual, instead of saying that I've, you know, I understand the stars, they would say, well, the Spirit of God has revealed this to me. Well, if the Spirit of God is revealing things to you, I want to know, know you, and I want to know what the Spirit of God is saying. And I want to know what the Spirit of God is telling me I should do. Um, and uh, so one of the things that you need to remember as a believer is that if God wants you to do something, he'll tell you. He won't tell me. He'll tell you. My job is to tell you what God has said in his word, not what God has said to me in a dream. All right? If God wants to speak to you in a dream, he'll speak to you in a dream. We'll talk about that if, if he's actually doing that or not later. But the idea is, is that um, God is fully capable of communicating with anybody. And he does that. We see that in the Bible. Um, and so we just want to make sure that no matter how desperate of a situation we get into, because it does happen in the lives of some Christians, where you know, someone you love dearly, a child, uh, or your wife or your husband, and they're desperately sick and they're dying, and we're just convinced that God wants them to live, but we're just we're missing something. And I want to know, what, what can I do? We always want to do something. What can I do? Um, and so, there, and that's why you have individuals today. It's, if you're not going through a desperate situation, you can immediately recognize how foolish it is. But when you're desperate, you know, the way you think about things it can be greatly affected. So, if you're not desperate, when someone comes along and says, well, I have these special prayers that you can pray, and perhaps your husband will live. Well, to the one who's not desperate, it's like, what do you mean special prayers? There's nothing like that in the Bible. But to the one who's desperate, I'll try anything. And so they may buy those. Or, you know, this still goes on. Individual who'll say, take a handkerchief, put it under your pillow, sleep on that handkerchief. Somehow it will absorb whatever your problems are. Then you send the handkerchief to this individual who will pray over it and send it back to you. There's different forms of this, but this is one of them. And then you can put it back on your pillow and sleep on it, and the Lord will send answers your way. And there's people who do that, because you have to remember when you send the handkerchief, you've got to send money. Uh, that's how that works. Um, and I guess the more money you send, uh, I guess the greater the prayers. But uh, that stuff still kind of that still goes on, and it goes on in this country, and it goes on in a lot of other countries. And some really weird stuff goes on. Really strange. There's some pastors in Africa. They have their congregations after church eating grass. Like literally going out into the yard and getting on all fours and eating grass. I don't remember what it's for. It just doesn't matter. Um, and people are falling for this stuff. Um, for whatever the reason. So again, the command to be on our guard. Uh, we want to make sure we encourage each other. That's why, we're, again, we study the Bible. And we do that together, and we look at the words and the phrases and the verses, and we look at the context to make sure we can understand together what God is saying um, and make sure that we're not led astray. Yes, ma'am. There's a passage in the Bible that says that God at one time was in a delusion that is so great that it would even fool the elect. Um, there is also, remember that when a person, yeah, when a person becomes a believer, remember now, you have some individuals who have been believers for two weeks. 
So they're much more vulnerable than someone who's been a believer for 20 years. If, if they're both studying the word, the one who's been saved for two weeks, they're, they're very vulnerable. Um, just because, even if, but even if a person's been saved for 20 years and they know the word, doesn't mean that that person still can't be fooled because we don't always think biblically. Again, that goes back to the importance of us being together as believers. All right? But we can't lose our salvation. No, no, no. You're not going to lose. No, it's not that, but you can ruin your life. You can lose all your money. You can lose your house. Right. You, can, you can lose right. hope. Um, you can all it's kinds of things. Yeah. So, again, by us being together and growing together, um, there's, all, there's, in a sense, like there's safety in numbers. So let's say that, I'll use John again because he's in the front. So John's in a desperate situation. All right? and so let's say because of whatever's going on, he's more vulnerable now because of this situation. And so he tells me that someone has told him something. I'm like, John. And, I'll, and then what I should do is say what the scripture says. And I explain to him what the scripture says. And then we talk about, so what is it that God would have us do at this point with this? Whether it's to pray uh, maybe it's to pray and do something. Could be could be a lot of different things. But that way we, we help each other out uh, in that way. And so that's why uh, the gathering of believers is important. And it's not just, again, it's not just a, a, the connection with the pastor. Because there will be times when other, well, somebody may share something with you, they're not going to share with me. But as believers, you can, you can say, you may even just say this, you know, that, that doesn't really sound right. I don't think that that's, you can say it. I don't think that's biblical. And then you try to figure out if it's biblical or not. That's what God wants us to do. That's how we look out for each other. It's really very important. Um, because uh, remember the warnings that Paul gives? He talks about uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And he tells them uh, when, when he writes the letters that it's not that they're coming, even though they are going to come, but they're already there. And what's dangerous about a wolf in sheep's clothing is that many times these false teachers come from within the church. Right? They, they look like believers. They sound like believers. Uh, they can be really very convincing. Um, and, and again, all you have to do is watch. Uh, for example, um, you know, we've talked a lot before about some of these guys. So let's say, okay, so you take Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn is just whacked out on a lot of things. But you need to pay attention. If you ever watch him, pay attention when he speaks in a church. Pay attention to the church. Church is huge. Whatever church is speaking, it's packed. There's thousands of people there. No one's arguing. They're shaking their head yes to what he says, saying amen. I read this in a book, and then I saw the video where he did this. Uh, a friend of mine used to work for uh, an apologetics group. And so there was this, this happened many years ago. I think it was the 90s when it happened. So Benny Hinn, was, he was doing his thing. He's, there's a lot, very large group of people there. I mean, there's thousands, at least 5,000 at this one gathering. But anyway, so he was preaching, and there are certain things he does There's in this body language thing that you sometimes do. And so he was preaching, and all of a sudden he stopped, and he, and he did this. And those who are familiar with Benny Hinn know that when he does this, that means at that moment, God is speaking to him. And so he said, he said hold on. He said, I'm getting a word from the Lord. All right? Which is a... To me, a very bold statement to make. Anyway, because if you say you're getting a word from the Lord, that means whatever you're about to say, if you're saying God told you that, then that has to have the same validity and credibility and authority as Scripture. I don't buy into that. But anyway, so, then, so after, after this took place, after he did this, this is what he said. 
He first said that he had, I guess, uh, been in, in Jerusalem for a while. Now, when you look at the whole context of what he's saying, it appeared to me he was saying that he had been in Jerusalem, which now makes him an expert on the Hebrew language. I don't think being in Jerusalem makes you an expert on the Hebrew language, but anyway. Then he said this. He said, in the Bible, God commanded man to have dominion over the earth and over the creatures of the earth. True. Then he said, dominion means you can do whatever those under you can do. That's not the definition of dominion. All right? I've coached high school football for a long time. I cannot run as fast as most of those guys. I cannot do what they can do. But I still have dominion or authority over them. Right? I'm still their coach. All right? But he, that's what he said. Then he went on and said this. He said that Adam was the first man on the moon. And he even said that there are some footprints up there from Adam. Now, that's a pretty wild statement, but this is what I caught when I was watching the videotape. In that congregation, people were hooping and hollering and saying amen. I'm like, are they listening to what he says? Then he said, because Adam had dominion over the creatures, he could run as fast as a cheetah. A cheetah can run 74 and a half miles an hour. The fastest human in the world, I think, just touches right about 23 miles an hour. But Adam could run 74 and a half. Then he said, Adam could swim as fast as a dolphin. And he could fly like an eagle. So the Wright brothers were not the first in flight. It was Adam. So when he said all those things, he wasn't joking. He wasn't trying to make a, a, an, an illustration. He was... He was, his message was basically getting to the whole point that if you have faith in God, you can do all these wonderful things and you can be like Adam and have dominion, you'll be rich. That's what he's getting at. All right? But that's what he said. And that's what he said. I'm, almost, I'm giving it to you almost verbatim. That's exactly what he, what he said to everybody. And I'm like, again, I'm not stunned that anybody might say that or even a few people would believe it. But if somebody would say that and you have a group of five or eight or 10,000 people shouting amen to that. That's just, that's nuts that that kind of thing goes on. And that wasn't like a one-time occurrence, okay? Those types of things, maybe not quite as obvious, but those kinds of things um, go on all the time. And so, again, that's why we need the, to, to read Scripture, to, to, to uh, study the Scripture, uh, because we've all been affected by sin. We're all, we, have to, we have to understand this. No matter what your IQ, we're all, we are all vulnerable, for different reasons. We are. We're vulnerable. Right? We don't want to fool ourselves into thinking, well, but I would never fall for that. Well, you might not fall for Adam being the first guy on the moon part, but there might be something else you would fall for. I don't want to be that guy. Now, that doesn't mean I disbelieve everybody, but I always take everything that's said with a grain of salt unless we get it from here. And, that's, and, we're, and you're always safe doing that. And we want to make sure that we do that. And that's what Paul's doing. So Because, again... There are many, many false teachers, and God is allowing them to roam, and they really do want to capture you for many different reasons. The, the main thing is they want, they want to take advantage of you, physically, financially, uh, whether it gives them power, feeds their ego, whatever. All right, there's, there's, as I said before, there's over 3,000 cults 
in America, 80 to 85% of them use the Bible to one degree or another. They're throwing around scripture. Uh, there was a guy one time, uh, for those of you who don't know, I used to be a chaplain in the jail. So when I said I was in jail, anyway, that was why I was there. Um, so there was a guy that I met in jail once, and uh, he, was, he was from England, had great accent, and he had en- enormous amounts of scripture memorized. I mean, it was impressive. I mean, enormous amounts. Well, just so you know, just because you have something memorized doesn't mean you know what it means. Amen. Okay, it doesn't mean that. It, it, it often does, but not always. So whenever the inmates would have all these different kinds of questions, he starts spouting off scripture. Even if it had nothing to do with what they were talking about, it just sounded impressive. And they go, man, this guy is, this guy's on it. This guy is smart. And I knew this guy was a flaming heretic. Uh, just from my discussions with him. And so on Fridays, we have a big circle. Guys could ask whatever they wanted to ask. And I don't remember the particular question, um, but they asked, someone asked me some question about something he said, but they didn't say it was him. So I'm answering it, and I'm asking the complete opposite of what he said. And of course, he knows he said that, so he's getting upset, and he stands up. And when he stands up, he just starts, he just starts spouting off Scripture. And he started quoting from the book of Ezekiel. Oh, and it sounded great. And, and all the guys thought, wow, this guy's putting the chaplain in his place. And so I let him finish, and I said, hey, I said, uh, I recognize the passage. I think it was Ezekiel 36 and 37. But anyway, I said, that was really good. I said, I'm glad you memorized that. I said, but it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. Nothing at all. And then I looked at all the guys and said, guys, this is a great example of what a false teacher can do. And I went ahead and just said it. You're in jail, you can say things just straight out. And I said, what a false teacher can do. I said, he just quoted from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, 37. Pretty much got the whole thing right, but it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's a smokescreen to make you think he knows something he doesn't know. I, so I looked at him. I said, so once again, I'm, I'm going to ask you directly, can you answer this question about this passage? And I read the passage again. I said, explain what that passage means. And of course, he, you know, he... I'm sure he couldn't do it, but he wasn't going to succumb to that, so he kind of went off again. And I think he was, this time he was quoting something from Genesis. And I go, huh, Genesis, very good. I said, I'm, I said you've got a lot of scripture memorized. I said, now you need to go back and study it. Uh, to understand what it says. Uh, but again, but people can be deceived for all kinds of reasons. Um, so we just want to make sure that we, we aren't that individual. Uh, in fact, I even had a guy once tell me that uh, he had gone to some, something at a, at a church and... Uh, some kind of miracle service, and he was kind of explaining what was going on, and it really sounded more demonic than anything else. And uh, so I said, I said, I, I, that's, not, that's not Christian. He said, it has to be. I go, why? He goes, it happened in church. And he was serious. In his mind, because it happened in church, it was of God. And I said, well, one married man goes to church and meets another married woman who's not his wife in church, and they get together and have an affair, is that from God? He said, well, no. He said, they met in church. Did God bring them together? And this is what he started to do. He goes, <laughs> I said, stop. <laughs> I said, God did not bring them together for that reason. <laughs> I said, that's man's sinful hearts, what that is. But we think in different ways, and we don't always think like we should. But, but again, it's not, but, but when I talk about thinking that way, that's not something reserved only for a certain percentage of the population. All of us are human beings. All of us have the ability to think. 
Yes, some of us may think better than others. But we all have the ability to think. We all have the ability to think logically. And as we learn the Word of God, we have a base for our, for our logical thinking. We have an understanding. And that prevents us from being led astray. And then we have each other to depend upon and lean upon. And so based on all those things together, that kind of protects us uh, from harm and from these kinds of things. And so that's what Paul is getting into. Because this church, you know, these people in Colossae, uh, they're having problems with these, this false doctrine coming in. And that's why Paul is giving them these commands and these principles that he's laying down for them. So again, um, these false teachers that were kind of infiltrating the church in Colossae, they were basically saying, Jesus Christ is all very well. He can do a lot for you, but he cannot enable you to escape, for example, what the stars have, have said uh, is going to happen. He can't do that. Uh, only we can do that because we have the secret knowledge uh, that you need. And we then can give it to you to enable you to be able to escape. And Paul is basically saying, uh, you need nothing but Christ. If you have Christ, you are able to overcome any power in the universe. For in him is nothing less than the fullness of God. And he is the head of every power and authority. For he created them. And that's, that's what Paul is getting at. And again, the emphasis is on every single believer. He's writing to the church. You have this. And so he's trying to get rid of this idea, which again is a Gnostic idea, but it's not unique to Gnosticism, and that is that only a few have this access uh, and knowledge. Everyone who knows Christ knows Christ. Everyone who knows Christ has the Spirit of God living in them. Now, none of us, having Christ in us, does not mean any of us have perfect interpretation. That's what we have to study. Okay? However... I do not have any greater gift of interpretation than you do. I may have more hours in studying, so therefore I have more knowledge, and I might be better at interpreting because of those hours of studying. But God hasn't said, well, Bob is the best interpreter of Scripture, and so therefore everybody needs to come to him. That's not how that part works. We have different gifts to help each other, but when it comes to understanding the Word of God, all of us are being aided by God to do that. Yes, there are those who are teachers, uh, but again, teaching doesn't mean special revelation is given to those individuals. They don't have a special place uh, with God. They're not closer to God than anybody else. It's none of that. Uh, we're, all, we're all, in that sense, we are all the same. We all come to Christ the same. We all, are, we are all are given different gifts by the Spirit of God. We even have, I believe, those gifts in varying degrees. Okay. Uh, so it's not all like one person may have the gift of teaching. It doesn't mean we can all teach the same. All right. There's people, there's people I respect uh, that I think have a much greater ability to teach than I do. I'm not jealous of that. I'm actually happy because I get to learn from them. All right. So we, so we have that understanding. But none of those things makes us any better than anybody else. Okay. We all have to submit to God. We all have to obey the same commands. In fact, uh, sometimes people misunderstand James, where James says, basically, don't be in a hurry to be a teacher because the teachers will, are under a uh, stricter judgment. Remember, that doesn't mean that those who teach the Word of God are under a different judgment. There's not one standard for teachers and another standard for the, everyone else. That doesn't exist. There's not a special command, a group of commands for the teacher and then other commands for everyone else. It just says stricter. It's a very important word. So basically, 
We're all going to be judged the exact same way when it comes to adultery. It's possible that an individual who, let's say an individual has been a believer for a year, they have all this stuff in their background, this guy's unfaithful to his wife, he repents, God blesses his marriage, his wife forgives him, they work it out, they move forward. That's fantastic. I commit adultery, God is like, no excuse. You teach others and you do this, no mercy. You can't teach anymore. You're out. Well, what's the difference? I did it only once. This guy did it once. I'm a teacher. Stricter judgment. It doesn't necessarily mean no mercy, but there's less mercy. Maybe greater grace for that individual. So, I, so I'm not held to a higher standard because God's never saying, well, you guys can commit adultery at least once. No big deal. He's not saying that. The same command for everybody. But what he is saying is, you? Uh-uh. It's not happening. Um, if you go, I think one of the best examples of this would be Moses. So when Moses was, was leading the children of Israel, uh, Moses was very gifted. He was a man of God. Uh, he, I mean, obviously he saw the miracles that God performed through him and through Aaron. Um, he, he was privy to a lot of things. So we all, most people are aware that when, as Moses was leading the people to the promised land, God told Moses that he would never enter the promised land. Why is that? Well, when you go back through the story, uh, stories of Moses' life, there was at one point when the children of Israel, like they normally did, were complaining big time. No water. Now, Moses had already performed a miracle before where he got water from a rock. And you think, I guess they forgot. So they were complaining big time. Moses, why have you brought us out here? You brought us out here to die of thirst. You know, basically, you're a loser. Um, we should have stayed in Egypt, all that kind of stuff. So Moses gets pretty upset. And so Moses, uh, he goes to God, and God tells him to speak to the rock, and the, water, and, and the rock will produce water. So what, we most, what most people remember about the story is, is as people are complaining, Moses in his anger says, must we bring water from the rock again? And he hits the rock with the rod, which is what he did the first time, because God told him. This time God told him to speak to the rock, but he doesn't. He hits the rock. And people think, oh, because he hit the rock, he can't go in the promised land. But that's not what the scripture says. What the scripture says is that he couldn't go to the promised land because he didn't hollow or honor the name of God. So you go back and reread the story. In English, there's one word that he, that he misused. In his anger, when he's yelling at the children of Israel, he said, must we, mean him and Aaron, Bring water from the rock again. Who brings water from the rock? God. Moses, in essence, in his anger, took credit for himself. One word. And God said, yeah, you're not going in the promised land. Now, he didn't lose his salvation. He was still a friend of God. God took him. All that was good. But there are consequences for what he did. One word. I mean, I, I, when you think about that, that's insane. Most of us. Maybe all of us would say, one word? Yeah, Moses can definitely take the people into the promised land. But that's not what God said. God was holding him to a stricter standard as, as, as his appointed leader over the children of Israel. Uh, and so that's why then James says, don't be in a hurry to be a teacher of the word of God. He's not trying to discourage you, but he just doesn't want people to know this, this is not some big old fun thing. 
because you you know you get to you know you get to be in charge. That's not how it works. I even had an inmate <laughs> had an inmate once come up to me and tell me he said he said Chaplain Bob he said you know I, I really like what you do when you teach this stuff you know I, I think God might be calling me to to the ministry. I said really. He goes yeah. Uh, I said why is that? He goes well you know I, I watch you and I, I think I could I could I could do good at telling other people what to do. <laughs> and I said yeah it's not that's not how it is. Um, I don't I don't run around telling people what to do. I said, you do a lot of teaching. And if you want to do a lot of teaching, you have to do a lot of reading and studying. I said, do you like to read and study? He goes, oh, no, not so much. I said, well, I'm not sure God's called you to be a pastor. You know? But anyway, uh, you know, we can get the wrong idea. So again, looking at uh, Colossians 2. Oh, man. Uh, Okay, so next week we'll pick it up. <laughs> we, will go, we will go through verse 9, and I predict that we will cover all of verse 9 um, <laughs> next Wednesday. Um, and uh, so keep your hand out, um, especially there's, there's, you can go ahead and read it. There's a, I have a long quote uh, by W.H.G. Uh, Thomas. Uh, it's dealing with the phrase in him. We're going to cover that phrase that Paul uses. It's an important phrase. Uh, one that's important for us to understand as Christians. Uh, kind of goes back to what I was telling you before about how we all are, in, one, in essence, the same before the Lord. We have the same Spirit of God living in us. And Paul talks about this union that we have with Christ. Uh, and that union we have with Christ, um, there's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of uh, resources we have available for us um, uh, through, through our relationship with the Lord. That's the result of understanding that phrase that we are in Christ or that we're in him. Um, and so we will, we'll begin to cover that uh, next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, and love. We thank you, Father, again for your word and for all that uh, Paul has given us here. We pray, Lord, that we will uh, contemplate these things, we'll think about them, we'll meditate on them. Father, we ask that we'll always be hungry for your word, that we would have a, a very strong desire for wisdom. <laughs> Uh, Father, we pray that you would keep us from going astray. Help us, Father, to be aware uh, of the many different ways that the evil one seeks to influence us and draw us away from Scripture. Help us, Father, to continually come to you and depend upon you, not only for safety and understanding, but that, Father, we would also pray for each other. Then, Father, also I want to pray for, um, for Joel Humphrey. Father, I know that he is uh, uh, very, very ill because of the, the chemo uh, that he's been going through. Um, and, Lord, as he's in the hospital... And all of his numbers are in disarray, uh, and he's extremely weak and in really bad shape. We ask, Lord, that you would give the doctors great wisdom uh, in being able to help him. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen his body. Uh, we pray, Lord, you help his body to overcome uh, a lot of the damage that has been done through the chemo. We pray, Lord, that through this, that the cancer that he had that uh, appears to be gone would remain uh, at bay, and that, Lord, that he would uh, uh, begin to show signs of improvement, and that his health would be restored, so that, Father, he may once again uh, begin to fulfill the responsibilities that he wants to fulfill regarding his family. Uh, Father, we ask that you would intervene, because he's at a, a point where uh, it almost seems out of reach for the doctors, uh, because they're very limited in what they can do, uh, and very limited in what they can try. Uh, but, Father, we are grateful because we know, Lord, that you are always with us, that you will never leave us, and that you are indeed the great physician. 
And so, Father, we ask that whether, whether you heal him instantly or, Lord, whether it's through a, a long process, we pray, Lord, that that would take place. And we ask, Lord, that it would become clear to Joel and clear to others that the life that he has and the life that he will have is because of you, that it be because of your intervention in his life, that it becomes clear that it is outside of the realm of anything the doctors were able to do and that the hand of God was truly present and truly manifested in this situation. So that, Father, you would receive all the glory and all the honor and that, Lord, it would encourage the hearts of believers and that it would cause those who are non-believers to once again reconsider what they think and what they believe and what they don't believe. That, Father, they would begin to recognize that God indeed does exist. And even though we don't see God, that does not mean that God is not present and that God is not active. So, Father, we're grateful for that. And so, Father, we ask now that as we are dismissed from our time together, we ask, Lord, that you would keep us safe and watch over us and allow us, Father, to return Sunday that we may worship you and give you the honor that you so rightly deserve. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.